This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. You know, a couple months ago, uh, back in October, I had the privilege of preaching the gospel to you from 2 Samuel chapter 9. And that chapter was a chapter about King David and the last remaining member of the house of Saul. Does anyone remember who that was? Mephibosheth, that's right. There was at least one or two of you listening. Uh, This morning, Lord willing, we're going to turn our attention again to King David. This time, we're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in this chapter, we will see the root of Christmas taking hold in the soil of God's covenant with King David. And Lord willing, we'll see in 2 Samuel 7 a God, the God of the whole universe, who saves his people from their sins. We're in the middle of an Advent series here at University Park Baptist Church. A couple weeks ago, we heard a sermon from Psalm 2 about the God who is. Last week, we heard from Exodus 19 and 20 about a God who speaks. And today, we're going to consider the very foundation of Christmas, the reason for the season, and that is that God has been working throughout history to bring about redemption for his people through the Lord Jesus Christ, who came into the world to save sinners like you and me. And we're going to do this in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I hope you've had the opportunity to find 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapters 5 and 6, you may recall, are something of a high point in Israel's history as that shepherd boy from Bethlehem, David, was finally crowned king over the nation of Israel. In 2 Samuel 5 and 6, we read how God's king was shepherd over God's people, that God's king defeated God's enemies, driving out the mocking Jebusites from the city of Jerusalem and defeating the persistent Philistines. We see in chapters 5 and 6 of 2 Samuel that God's king established God's city, David's city. And all of this because God's king was concerned for God's glory as he returned the Ark of the Covenant back to the center of God's people. And then we turn the page to 2 Samuel 7. One of the things you need to keep in mind about a Hebrew narrative like 2 Samuel is it's kind of the reverse of what we're used to. In our modern day, we tend to think of climaxes in a story being these very momentous occasions when all of this energy kind of comes together in this mountaintop. That does occur in Scripture at times, but most likely in Hebrew narrative, you have a lot of activity happening, and then the story tends to slow down and to focus on a particular person. And most of the time, that person's encounter with the God of all glory. And so we come to 2 Samuel 7, and it tends the story is slowing down. And we have King David and his counselor, Nathan. And in this chapter, we will see that Christmas is simply the fulfillment of a covenant-making God and a covenant-keeping God that produces in God's people covenant praise to God. And that'll be the outline of the sermon this morning if you're taking notes. The first section will be covenant-making God. We'll see a covenant-making God. The second section will be a covenant-keeping God. A covenant-keeping God. And lastly, we'll spend a few moments seeing how God's covenant-making and covenant-keeping character ought to lead us to covenant praise to this great God. But before we jump into 2 Samuel 7 this morning, 
Let's take a moment now and pray and ask God to be with us as we consider his word. Let's pray. Lord God, you have given us many precious and great promises in your word. And every one of these promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you would turn to us, O God. Be gracious to us now. Do more for us in this time together than all that we can ask or think. Speak now, O Lord, through your word, for your people are listening. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Hear God's word from 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Now, when the king had lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. I wonder if you've ever wanted to do great things in your life. Maybe some of you younger folk, uh, children and college-age students, have wanted to aspire to great things in your life. I wonder if any of you have wanted to do something great for God, been motivated by doing this great thing for God. Have you ever echoed the words of that famous, famous missionary, William Carey, when he said he wanted to do great things, attempt great things for God? I think that's what David is experiencing and, and, and saying here to Nathan. The Lord had given David rest over his surrounding enemies. The King David is in a, living in a fine house of cedar. And David says to his counselor, Nathan, I want to attempt a great thing for God. I want to build God a house greater than my house. But you see, King David, well, King David never had met William Carey. And so King David didn't realize that when you attempt great things for God, you should expect great things from God. David and Nathan agree that the Lord needs a nice house. But the Lord, the Lord had a different building plan in mind altogether. In fact, the Lord had been laying covenant bricks for millennia to build to this very moment with King David in 2 Samuel 7, where the Lord himself will promise to build David a great house. The Lord promises to build David a great house. So let's look back at 2 Samuel 7, verse 4. That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from, the following, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. 
I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, David spoke Nathan spoke to David. In these verses, David, in the verses preceding this, David had affirmed, Nathan had affirmed David's desire to build the Lord a house. And we know from 1 Kings chapter 8 that David's desire to build God this house, it was a good desire. In 1 Kings 8.18, the Lord commends David for this very desire. And yet, in 2 Samuel 7.4, the Lord came to Nathan that very night and told Nathan in verse 5, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? And then the Lord does something very instructive for us. Very instructive for us. The Lord begins to recall Israel's redemptive history, all that God had done for his people to bring them to this point, how the Lord has been with his people when he brought them out of Egypt in the days of Moses, how he raised up judges to shepherd his people Israel until he had brought about this king, the Lord had brought about King David. So in verses 6 and 7, we hear how the Lord in their distress drew near to his people. So brothers and sisters, our God, we need to know, we need to believe, we need to remind one another, our God is not a distant God. Our God is not a disconnected God. God is not a cosmic watchmaker who created the world like a wound up watch and left it to run its course. Yahweh is not Allah. He is not a distant God demanding our obedience without giving us aid. Yahweh is the one true and living God, the one who draws near to his people, who tabernacles among his people, who relates to his people as a good father to his beloved children. And so in times of doubt or frustration or confusion, beloved, we would do well to recount how God has cared for his people throughout redemptive history how he cared for his people of old, how he cared for his people in the new, and how he cares for each one of you day by day. God has never left us, and God will never forsake his people. 
And so we need to ask this question as God is instructing us here about how to recall these things to mind, to encourage us as we attempt great things for God, we need to ask the question, how is it that God relates to his people? This God who draws near to his people by faith, how is it that he comes to his people? 2 Samuel 7 shows us that he comes to his people through covenant relationships through the making of binding promises from the sovereign creator God to his creaturely subjects. We need to know that our God is a covenant-making God. It's how he's related to his people from the very beginning. So one theologian put it, by the very act of creating Adam and Eve in his own image, God established a unique covenant relationship between himself and his humanly creatures. In the beginning, God created all things, and he placed Adam and Eve, his people, in the garden. And God gave them creation commands that form the basis of his covenant relationship with his people. These creation commands in Genesis 1 and 2, to labor, to labor, to work the ground, take dominion, subdue the earth. The command to procreate, to build a family, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the command to rest as God rested from his creation. These commands of God woven into the very fabric of creation, even for you to labor, to procreate, to rest. To obey these commands in the garden was to live a blessed life with God as God's people in God's place. But to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would, to break, would be to break covenant with God, to sin against God, and to fall under the covenant curse of God. And sadly, we know that that is exactly what happened with our first parents, Adam and Eve. Tempted by the serpent, they took of the fruit, and they ate of the fruit, and they broke covenant with God. And so many years later, these London Baptists wrote down in a confession that our first parents fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them, we in them, whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties of soul and body. We are all by nature, because we are in Adam by nature, we are all covenant breakers bearing the covenant curse of God. And we are all in need of covenant salvation that can only come from God. And the good news, the good news is that God is rich in mercy. The good news is that because of the great love with which he loves his people, God, even when we were dead in our sins, made a covenant promise to Adam. God made a covenant promise to Adam in Genesis 3.15 to save his people from their sins. God promised in Genesis 3.15 that he would send forth the seed of a woman, a masculine singular pronoun, a baby boy who would cut off the head of Satan. He would bring us back into covenant relationship with God. Genesis 3.15, the very first Christmas gift ever given. And so we studied just about a year ago the Genesis account 
of how the seed of the woman marches on throughout history. We traced out the seed of the woman. We read in Genesis 4 of wicked Cain and godly Abel. And we read that after Cain had murdered Abel, God was faithful to his promise to Adam. And he gave Adam another godly son, Seth. And it's from the line of Seth in Genesis 5, we're introduced to Noah. In Noah's day, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. But Noah, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It's in Genesis 6 where the Lord declares that he will make a covenant with Noah After the great flood where God restarted creation, we read in Genesis 9, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Do you hear the echoes of the command to Adam? And later in that same chapter, behold, I establish my covenant with you, Noah, and your offspring after you. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. It's in the covenant that God makes with Noah that God reconstitutes his creation covenant and resets all of creation as the theater of God's glorious work in history, his redemptive work, where he will go about saving his people. So we have the covenant with Adam. We have the covenant with Noah. And as we continue to trace the seed of the woman promised to Adam, we see Noah had three sons, Japheth, Ham, and Shem. And it's through the Shemitic line that God calls out a son of Shem, Abram, in Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Genesis 15, God formalizes his covenant with Abram. Genesis 17, we see God confirm his covenant with Abram and renames Abram to Abraham. So it's at this point in the storyline of Scripture, we see that this God, the first 17 chapters, is a very active covenant-making God. God has promised to send a Redeemer through the line of Adam that would bless the nations. He promised to Noah to sustain creation, so to bring about this redemptive fulfillment. And through the son of Adam, the son of Noah, the son of Abraham, God has promised to make his name great, to make him a great nation, to give them land, to bless the nations through him. In other words, God has promised to rule over God's people in God's place, just as in the beginning. God is a covenant-making God to bring about salvation for his people. And this Abrahamic covenant was reaffirmed to Isaac and to Jacob, the sons of Abraham. In Genesis 35, God blessed Jacob, renamed him Israel. And Israel had 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. One of them was Levi. And after the people of Israel were in captivity in Egypt for 400 years, we read in Exodus 2 of a man from the house of Levi who took his Levite wife and bore a son named Moses. And God raised up Moses, the son of Levi, 
the son of Israel, the son of Abraham, the son of Noah, the son of Adam, to lead his people Israel out of captivity from the Egyptians. And God made a covenant with Israel through Moses, their great covenant mediator. And Moses, that covenant mediator, led God's people to the land promised to his father Abraham. It was Joshua, Moses' right-hand man from the tribe of Ephraim, who led God's people into the conquest of that land. And we learn in the book of Joshua that the king of Israel promised to Abraham would come from the tribe of Judah. And so time marched on. Time marches on for every one of us. God's covenant promises remain then and now. Through Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses, God accomplished his redemptive purposes of bringing God's people under God's rule in God's place. And then we get to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel 7, where we read of what Psalm 89 calls God's covenant with King David, the son of Jesse, from the tribe of Judah the son of Israel, the son of Abraham, the son of Noah, and the son of Adam. Do you see in this very brief overview of the majestic sovereignty of God at work so providentially in human history, the majestic sovereignty of God so at work, particularly through covenants, this sovereign work of God, who is so pleased to redeem rebellious humanity, so pleased to save his people from their sins. As we think about these things, and and some of you have thought about this before, others of you, you, you may be lost in what I'm saying. Brothers and sisters, from Genesis to 2 Samuel 7, we must walk away knowing that our God is a covenant making God that his ways are higher than our ways. Who can plumb the depths of the mind of God? Who has been his counselor? I had lunch this week with a faithful, godly uh, brother from another church, and he was simply saying to me, have you considered how miraculous it is that every one of you are actually born? That if you trace your lineage back, All of the mundane day-to-day realities, the wicked sins, the wonderful things that your forefathers and foremothers did, all of these things that came about to this very point in time that you are alive. It is truly miraculous. And so consider that it's not only that you're a miracle, but that God has done this in particular through these covenants and brought you to this very point. Our God is a covenant-making God working providentially and particularly throughout all of history to save his people from their sins. We're not even done. We're not even done seeing how awesome is this covenant-making God. So we turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we see that the Lord dictates this covenant relationship with King David in verses 8 through 17. The Lord recounted to David how God himself has been David's shepherd. 
literally taking him out of the sheep pasture, making David shepherd over God's people Israel. God recounted how he had defeated all of David's enemies. And then the Lord turns and he makes a covenant with David. And listen closely to the language of this covenant. Verse 9. I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. Do you hear the echoes of the Abrahamic covenant, the continuity of the promises of our gracious God from start to finish? Verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, giving them rest over their enemies. Do you hear the land promises to Abraham and Moses? Do you hear of the rest that was so lost in the garden from the Garden of Eden? The Lord will make you a house and a kingdom that shall be made sure forever. David is the king that was promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. David is the conduit through which the ultimate king will come. All of the prior covenants in the Bible culminate at this point in 2 Samuel 7 upon King David. That's why, have you ever wondered why King David is so important in all of Scripture? It's because everything rests on him. Everything points to him. He is a type of Messiah, the seed of the woman. He has defeated God's enemies with God's help. He has established God's city, ruling over the place and the land that was promised to Abraham and Moses. David is concerned for God's glory, seeing the Ark of the Covenant should be in a temple rather than in a tent. David is the covenant mediator like Moses. He executed justice amongst God's people according to God's law. He represented God's people to their covenant God, all of the Bible has been working its way from Genesis chapter 3 to 2 Samuel 7 because God is a covenant-making God and King David is God's king. But friends, God is not only a covenant-making God. For what good would it do to make covenant with a God who would break covenant? No, God not only makes covenants with his people, God keeps covenant with his people. And so in 2 Samuel 7, God made covenant with King David, the epitome of all of God's covenants at this point in redemptive history. God promised to make David's name great, to give his people a place, to rule over them with a king, to establish this line and throne of David forever. But look with me at verse 12. Look at verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. God is telling David that David will die. David will die. He will not be able be able to overcome the covenant curse of Genesis 3. All of these covenant promises laying upon King David. And yet David will die. It must be a son of David who will fulfill these Davidic promises. Verse 13 tells us that we see the son of David will, will in fact build the temple of the Lord. David wanted to build the temple, but God said, no, David, you will bear the covenant curse of death. But your son will build me a temple. And David, the throne 
your throne will continue through your sons. And we know in the immediate context of this verse that David's son, Solomon, did build the temple of the Lord. We also see in verse 14 that this son of David will be disciplined by the Lord for iniquity. And we know that Solomon, with his foreign wives and his idolatry, was in fact disciplined by the Lord. First Kings chapter 11, the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your mind and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I commanded you, I will tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Yet, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your day. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear it away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. And so we see that the fulfillment of these Davidic promises can only be accomplished by a faithful, obedient son of David. And as the history of Israel unfolds, and we have the privilege of reading it now as time marches on, we can read of the faithlessness and the disobedience of the sons of David who sat on David's throne. We can read and see that the discipline and judgment of God fell upon his people because the sons of David were not obedient, faithful sons. We read of the division of the kingdom and ascending into exile from the promised land. God sent forth prophets to his people to prosecute the case of covenant disobedience. And in the midst of this prophetic prosecution, people began to wonder whether God was, in fact, a covenant-keeping God. Go read Psalm 89 and the anguish filled in Psalm 89, asking, has, God, has God's promises to David failed? The people were wondering, is God, in fact, a covenant-keeping God? Would he be true to his covenant promises to David? And wouldn't you know that God... God gave a better word to the prophets than just prosecution. Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. Behold, the Lord declares, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 34 Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up out of David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is my righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man on the throne of the house of Israel. Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 34. 
but it was perhaps Isaiah who saw the glory of the son of David and the glory of our covenant-keeping God most clearly in Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The surety of the covenant with David lies ultimately in the fact that God himself will come as king and sit on David's throne. And so time marched on. Hundreds of years passed. God's people wondering, will God keep covenant? Wondering, has God forgotten us? And it's the angel Gabriel who appeared to a virgin woman, betrothed to Joseph of the house of David. In Luke chapter 1, the angel said to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you shall bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Israel forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And this child born in Bethlehem, the son of David grew in wisdom and stature among men. He obeyed all of God's righteous law. He never once broke covenant with God. And on the night before he would be betrayed by sinful, lawless, covenant-breaking men, Jesus Christ ate a last supper with his disciples and he took a glass of wine and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood that's poured out for you. And on that next day, Jesus Christ sat on the throne of David on the cross. And his blood poured out a new covenant for all who would come to him by faith. God keeps covenant to David of an everlasting kingdom and a forever throne by making an everlasting covenant through the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God gave to David, to Jesus, the throne of his father, David. Jesus will reign over the house of Israel. What Paul says is the church of the living God forever and forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And so we read in Revelation 11 that tells us of that day when the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ and Jesus shall reign forever. God keeps covenant with David by giving his people a place, by giving the son of David dominion over all things, by bringing both Jew and Gentile into the Israel of God, the church of Jesus Christ, and secures for us, loved ones, the hope of a new Jerusalem, a new heaven, a new earth that was promised to our father, Adam. 
God keeps covenant with David of a great name by giving the son of David a name above every name. That there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. That at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God His Father, our covenant-keeping God. Jesus Christ is the Genesis 3.15 seed of the woman. Jesus Christ is the evidence of God's goodwill to his creation promised to Noah. Jesus Christ is the blessing of Abraham to all the families of the earth. Jesus Christ is the greater Moses, our law-keeping covenant mediator. Jesus Christ is the king of the world who rules over All things from David's everlasting throne, all of God's covenant promises, yes and amen in Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Adam, the son of God. Praise Jesus Christ. Our God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it begs the question this morning, if all that I just said was true, and it is by God's own decree, it begs the question, how do we relate to this God? This God who makes covenant with his people, who keeps covenant with his people by the death and the resurrection of his own son. Well, David gives us language. David gives us instruction here in 2 Samuel 7 to help us give covenant praise to this God. This is not covenant praise mixed with instruments and singing, but this is covenant praise that shows forth in a humble and courageous dependence on this covenant-keeping God. Look with me at 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. There is none like you. There is no God beside you. According to all that we have heard with our ears, and who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and your concerning his house and do as you have spoken. Your name will be magnified forever, saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel and the house of your servant David will be established before you. 
For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God. Your words are true. You have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. We see in these verses a lot of the same themes we just considered about God establishing the house of David forever. And we see all of those covenant promises fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we want to ask ourselves, how is it that we should respond? If King David was this type of Messiah and we have the Messiah now, surely there's something to learn from how David responds to the Lord here. Well, we see first that a a proper response to God is simply humility. It's humility. There should be no proud Christian. We should be humbled under the great providence and particular care of God for his people and how even his grace was sufficient for us. King David sets before the Lord in humble prayer and he confesses, Who am I, O Lord God? Brothers and sisters, how often we should simply say, Who am I, O Lord God, that you should bless me in the ways you have? Brothers and sisters, Who are you that God would providentially work in human history, that God would particularly work through his covenants to be pleased to redeem a rebel like you? Who are you, brother and sister? David tells us that this was no small thing for our all-powerful God, verse 19. And in verse 22, David confesses, you are great, O Lord God, there is none like the Lord our God. There is no God beside you. God is the only one who can create and recreate. The only one who can make an eternal covenant and keep an eternal covenant. God is the only true and living God. There is no other. And what more can we say, loved ones? Because of his great promise and according to his own heart toward us, God has brought about so great a salvation and has graciously revealed it to us in his word. And so we should say like Paul, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. We should be humble before God. And we see also that we should be courageous for God. Humbled before God and courageous for God. You start to feel the courage and the boldness of David build throughout his prayer. And then in verse 23, David prays, who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth among whom God went to redeem his people, making himself known, doing great and awesome things. Further down, David prays, you establish for yourself your people forever. You, O Lord God, became their God. In verse 27, therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, who is like God's people? The Israel of God, the covenant of old, is simply our brothers and sisters of the old, fulfilled in the new. The Israel of God, Paul says, is the church of Jesus Christ, the one nation on earth whom God has redeemed to be his people from all nations of the earth. 
The Lord Jesus did not die for any particular nation state. The Lord Jesus died and rose from the dead so that people from all nation states might enter by way of the new covenant, that all the families of the earth might be blessed. What great and awesome things God has done in our midst. Perhaps the greatest evidence for the truth of God's word and the activity of God's spirit is the fact that men and women from every tribe and tongue and nation gather together every Lord's day over all the earth. And even many of you, look at how wonderful it is when we gather together, having little in common at times, except for the great reality that we have submitted ourselves by the power of the Holy Spirit of God to the reign of David's son, Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, our King has given us assurance that the gates of hell will not prevail against who? Against the church. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. What courage we should have. What courage we have. This commitment to God. We've already seen God as a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, and He has established a new covenant with His people, the church, and said the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What courage we should have to obey all of God's commands, to turn the world upside down for Jesus Christ. And in fact, God has given us a mission, hasn't he? He's given us that mission to proclaim to all the world that King Jesus has defeated God's enemies of sin and death and hell, and that King Jesus has secured a dwelling place for God's people, that King Jesus is the rightful ruler over all of God's creation, that King Jesus has done all these great things by his faithful life of covenant obedience, and yet he died on the cross as a common covenant breaker like you and me, and he did it so that we might be found faithful in him, bearing the cross for us, the very wrath of God and this son of David. This son of David was disciplined for our iniquities. Second Samuel 7, people get tied up because it says that God says that he will discipline David's son. Did he da discipline David's son? Yes, he did on the cross. But that discipline was given for our sins, for our sins, because Jesus was faithful. He is the mediator of a new covenant, an everlasting covenant, whereby faith in Jesus Christ, your heart of stone will be replaced by a heart of flesh. The Spirit of God will seal you and empower you and encourage you to live a life of faithfulness to your King. God will be your God in Jesus Christ and you will be his people forever. And if you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, if you are here this morning and you have not submitted yourself to King Jesus, friend, you should do so now. You should do so now. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that God offers you a new covenant in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And friend, you should listen to Jesus' own words that he gives us in Revelation 22. Jesus speaks and he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. And then the Spirit of Christ and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty and who has nothing and needs the water of life without price, let that one come. So friend, come to Jesus Christ 
today. In church, let us humbly, courageously take this good news to the ends of the earth, starting even in our own neighborhoods, because the reign of King Jesus and the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. We have nothing to be afraid of. And the final thing that David teaches us here is to humbly, courageously depend on God. We are to be humble and courageous and dependent. From first to last, we are dependent on God. We're dependent on God for life, for redemption, and for life everlasting. What do you have that you have not received, loved ones? If God can orchestrate so great a covenant story as we have considered this morning, then surely he knows the number of hairs on your head and he will give you all that you need for life and for godliness. So now, therefore, may it please the Lord our God to bless his church so that it may continue forever before him. For he is our covenant-making, covenant-keeping God who has spoken, is faithful, and will surely do it. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Our God in heaven, we thank you that in Jesus Christ, you have made an everlasting covenant with us, your people. And that, through, and that though the earth should quake and nations rage, your steadfast love for us, O God, will never be removed. So God, we pray for humility, knowing that we are undeserving of your great love and mercy, and yet we stand as children of your promise, a promise made to our fathers in the faith, fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray for humble courage to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and to call all people to join us as we march in royal procession to the city of God. And Lord, we pray for humble, courageous dependence. For we know that only you can do these great and awesome things in our midst. For from you and through you and to you are all things. To you be glory now and forevermore. For Jesus' sake, amen.